So last Sunday, we studied Ephesians chapter 1, verse 2, right? We looked at grace and peace, these two wonderful gifts and blessings that God gives to his people. Keep in mind, Ephesians was written to believers, so when we see grace and peace there, it's not that they're not for the world in a sense. There's an offering of those things in a way, but for the most part, those are two things that God the Father and God the Son bestow upon his children. It's, 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 it's something that they give to believers. And I don't know about you, but I really need a lot of grace. And boy, most of the time I need peace. And so God gives those things to us freely uh, through Jesus Christ. And we talked about that in some detail. If you weren't here, uh, you might want to go back and listen to that sermon online. I think it's the first one right on the front page. This morning, we're going to begin to study, uh, obviously, chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Um, there's no way we'll be able to tackle that entire section uh, today. Um, it's, it's incredible. Um, it, it sort of begins with Paul, you know, in, in verse 3, he, he informs the Ephesians. Remember, he's writing to this, you know, little body of Christ in Asia Minor at the city of Ephesus where he planted a church. And he, he begins in verse 3 of, of telling them that, that they have certain spiritual blessings that are in Christ and how many of you have actually heard of these spiritual blessings, or you've, you've maybe read this text and you've, and you've ever wondered what these spiritual blessings might be? We've heard people even at RHC here, Colby and I think, maybe another, but Colby has talked about them in some detail. Um, so, you know, it's, there's a little bit of mystery around these spiritual blessings, but what's really, really cool about this text is that he goes on in verse 4 to 14 to tell us what they are. So it's like, you've got these amazing, insane, incredible spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. And it's not like he leaves it there and we've got to try to you know, search the scripture to figure out what those things are. He goes on and gives us like seven of them in the remainder of that section, four to 13. And so we're going to begin to look at those spiritual blessings, hopefully in some detail, Lord willing, over the next couple of weeks. And I, I think it's just going to be a real treat. It's going to be awesome. Uh, before Getting started, I think it's appropriate to, to pray again and just to seek the Lord right now. And Father God, actually, you know what? We want to pray to the Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we pray to you and, and we ask for illumination, that you would illuminate, brighten our minds, uh, help us to understand the truth and speak truth to us directly. And may it be transformative, not just data, not just information, not a lecture, uh, but a biblical sermon that, that carries out what it says in Hebrews 4.12. The word is a sharp, double-edged sword. It cuts right through who we are, gets through all the junk. It even extracts it surgically. And so we pray that the, the truth would have that kind of power today in this place. And we're going to need it. We need to hear the truth today. And we need to believe the truth today. And we need to obey the truth today. And we're, we're praying to... Uh, the Holy Trinity this morning. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, do your ministry, do your work here, and be glorified above all else. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's pick it up at verse 3. I'll read it. And we had Harry read the whole section just to give us a sort of a framework, but we're going to break it down. Let's look at 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There it is. 
Right there, Paul's telling the Ephesians, you got a bunch of amazing spiritual blessings. They're in Christ, but they're also in these heavenly places. And that's kind of the mystifying aspect of it, heavenly places. We're going to talk about all of this in detail. There are several things to note about verse 3. Before we even get to the blessings, we've got to understand what he's saying here. First thing that we see in verse 3 is that Paul begins with praise to God. He begins with praise to God, right? He does. He, he wrote, blessed. You see it? Blessed. Blessed is a praise term, a praise phrase, if you will. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's just revisit the context real quick again, right? Back in verse 1, Paul defined what Christians are. He did. Saints, faithful, and in Christ. In verse 2, he declared what they have from God in Christ, grace and peace. And what follows in verse 3 is praise. Blessed be the God God, our Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's like, here's what you are. You're a saint. You're faithful. You're in Christ. Here's what you have, grace and peace from God. And he just breaks out and says, blessed be God. Praise is how he begins this next section. He's praising God before he actually gets to the other spiritual blessings. Amazing. Blessed Be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is praise here. There is worship here. There is adoration here. There is exaltation right here at the beginning. He just, a double-barrel shotgun blast of praise. Blessed be. It's amazing. I love that. It is in light of who Paul is and who the Ephesians are, saints, faithful, and in Christ, and what they have, grace, peace, and every spiritual blessing, as he goes on to say, that he praises. That's the concept. He's praising God for what God has done for them. Awesome. And interestingly, Paul began all of his epistles, except for Titus, and I'm not sure why. I'm sure there's praise to God in there if you read through the whole letter. But I looked at like the first maybe 10 verses and didn't see it right off the bat. But most of the time, or at least in every other case, Paul begins his epistles with some form of praise to God. Some form of praise. Now, the pattern of praise in his letters is to be modeled by believers. What we see Paul essentially doing in all of his letters, with the exception of Titus, for whatever reason, I think he was combating some error and some wolves and things, and he got right into the defense against these guys. But what we actually see is him praising, and that sets for us a model. It sets for us a standard as Christians that we are to begin in terms of thinking of God and daily life and all these things with praise. Praise is the starting point. Praise is the beginning. As Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, praise and thanksgiving are ever to be the great characteristics of the Christian life. If we're known for anything in this world as believers, it ought to be praise. Usually we're known for what we're against. Well, the Supreme Court, I tell you what, Well, this, 1973, you know, Roe v. Wade, and by the way, it's hilarious because I have a lot of believers that I interact with, and and some, and and they mean well, but they'll say, you know, well, it's official with this new Supreme Court ruling, God's wrath is against America. And I say, you think that that's what has initiated his wrath? You forgot about 1973? Do you know how many babies have been aborted by America since then? 55 million No, God is wrathful against us now. This is just one more step 
This is just one more thing. One more thing to add to the fire of his wrath. But Christians, even in light of this situation, should be known for praise. For praise to God. And it doesn't mean that we can't be known for what we support and what we're opposed to. I get that. And it's part of our witnessing. But for the most part, we should be known for praise. Now think of this in practical terms. If our lives are to be modeled after how Paul began his letters, and, and Martin Lloyd-Jones' statement is true that praise and thanksgiving are ever to be the characteristics of our Christian life, then think of it in practical terms. Our days should begin with praise to God. Our prayers should begin with pray, uh, praise to God. But our prayers always begin with, i got to get through this. I need this from you. I can't believe what she did. Blah, 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 blah. Our prayers should start with exaltation, with adoration, right? They should start with praise. Our emails and letters to other believers should begin with praise to God. Our church services should begin with praise to God. Our conversations with other believers, and probably with non-believers, even though that's a little challenging, but our conversations in particular with believers should begin with praise to God. Now, think of Paul's epistles as conversations in a way. They're kind of one way, but they are teaching and conversational with churches, with the churches that he planted, with the churches throughout Asia Minor and these places. And they all begin with praise. So why would we not start our conversations, start our correspondence and these things as he did with praise? See, the thing is is that I couldn't even get past the first word in that verse, blessed, without being annihilated and convicted. Because I I tell you right now, I I, I don't start the majority of my prayers with praise. I don't start the majority of my conversations with praise. I, I I don't live my life this way, man. Do you? I just figured we could just wrap it up right there and just pray and, you know, attempt to take communion and, and go home with our tails, but, you know, tucked and that's it, I'm done. Well, that's not all he has for us, but it's true, right? Do we live lives of praise? Or do we live lives of constant moaning and groaning over our circumstances or our, our government or our you know, situation, our work, our jobs, our marriages? Oh, I'll tell you that, Bill. You know, it's, it's something to think about. I don't think that I, I know I don't, and I don't think we as a whole praise God enough. And maybe we should rethink all of that. Look at Paul's example there, and let's, let's try to follow that example and be praising people, people who adore God in every situation and praise Him first before we get to the whole you know, list of things. The second thing to notice is that our praise must be directed to the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Father and God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, are mentioned at the front of that verse, right? Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's, there's two members of the Trinity there. The Holy Spirit is inferred at the back end of the verse. How so? He's the one who delivers the blessings that we have in Christ to us. So it's like, blessed be God the Father, and in a way, blessed be the one who brings us these blessings. So the whole Trinity's in that verse, at least inferred. It's amazing. The right way to look at verse 3 is, God the Father has provided for believers every spiritual blessing 
in his son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit brings those spiritual blessings to us. This is why our praise must be directed to the entire Godhead. Each person of the Godhead is involved in our salvation and spiritual blessings. God the Father wrought our salvation. God the Son bought our salvation with His blood. And God the Holy Spirit brought our salvation to us. Wrought, brought, and wrought, wrought, bought, and brought. Don't try to say those things real fast in a row. You'll end up with brought worst. All three members of the Godhead are involved in our salvation. It's amazing. And so much of our praise today is lopsided, right? Some Christians focus entirely on God the Father. Everything that they do and say, everything that they preach, everything that they praise when they sing, and all that's all directed to God the Father. And then some Christians focus entirely on, on you know, God the Son, Jesus Christ, right? We, we've got a Jesus-centered church. It's all about Jesus all the time. Jesus, 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 Jesus. And obviously some Christians focus entirely on God the Holy Spirit. All they ever talk about is the Holy Spirit. All they ever talk about is Spirit, come here and be with us. Spirit, give us this. Spirit, provide this for Spirit. Give us signs and wonders. Spirit, 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 right? But the Bible shows us balance. Ephesians 1.3 shows us balance. All three, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, are to be praised all the time, all the time. We are to praise them equally. Give praise to the Father. Give praise to the Son. Give praise to the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you something. That is what honors and glorifies the Holy Trinity. When we give each one equal adoration, attention, focus, and praise. And is that the way that we're living? I can tell you no for me because I put most of my focus on Jesus. And I can tell you I have charismatic friends and they put most of their focus on the Holy Spirit. And I'm not sure who out there puts most of the focus on God the Father, uh, with the exception of a few cults out there like Jehovah's Witnesses. But for the most part, is that what our lives, if we're to be in perpetual praise, are we praising Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Are we localizing and focusing and targeting one member of the Holy Trinity? Something massive to consider. Third, our spiritual blessings are what? They're in Christ. In other words, you're not going to find them anywhere else. They're nowhere else to be found. They're absent everywhere else. You're not going to find them through mystical experiences, not through other religions, not through other people or processes. We're not going to produce them through you know, our performance or religiosity. They are only found in Christ, as the verse explicitly states. These spiritual blessings are in Christ. Christ is the well of our spiritual blessings. And He is a deep well. If you want spiritual blessings, you have to come to Christ because He alone is the channel by which they flow. He is the channel by which they come to us from God the Father. If you ditch Christ, you ditch spiritual blessings. You may think that you have some form of it or some kind of religious knowledge or whatever, 
but you do not have the true spiritual blessings from God the Father through Christ the Son. They're only in Christ the Son. So they are in Christ. Fourth, our in Christ spiritual blessings are in the heavenly places. That's the one where it gets okay. What exactly does that mean? I'm going to make a desperate attempt to explain it. And I believe this is how we should interpret this. In the heavenly places means that they were planned for us in eternity past in the heavenly places before the world was created. I think that's the best way to interpret what that is. It's not like they're up there in the heavenly places in Christ and somehow we have to incline ourselves to them and make some kind of ascent. No, it, it simply means that they were pre-planned and created for us before the world ever, the foundations of the world were ever laid. And I, I love that for a number of reasons. One thing that I was thinking of last night that's not in this sermon was that if our spiritual blessings that, that are in Christ were created for us, designed for us, and set aside for us in heaven, that means they must be perfect because heaven is an incorruptible place. It means the spiritual blessings are blessings in the absolute truest sense because they were wrought, created, formed in heaven long before this world ever fell. They're perfect. I mean, not to mention that they come from a perfect author. It's a wonderful thing. I love verse 4. It literally says, before the foundation of the world. And, and really what he's talking about here is these spiritual blessings and a few other things here. It's, it's before all of this was made that these blessings were generated, if you will. I don't even see how God could think them up then because everything's in his mind at all times. So, but that is the origin of these spiritual blessings is heaven. It's not on this fallen destitute fallen earth i think this is just incredible to think that these things came forth or were set apart for us in heaven before the foundation of the earth now that's that's just that's mysterious that's amazing but that's exactly what he's saying and i just think that's really really cool i love how martin lloyd jones put it and i'll quote him periodically because i'm using one of his commentaries and it's fantastic he says here are you and i miserable worms in this world Miserable worms with our arrogance and our pride and our appalling ignorance. We deserve nothing but to be blotted off the face of the earth. But what has happened is that before the foundation of the world, this blessed God, these three persons considered us, considered our condition, considered what would happen to us. And the consequence was that these three persons, God, whom man has never seen, stooped to consider us and planned a way whereby we might be forgiven and redeemed. Wow. This is just mind-blowing. That, that what you're experiencing today, the blessedness of salvation, was planned for you in eternity past. And every other blessing that's associated, the grace and the peace and all of these things that are associated with salvation, all of that was set up for you way before you even breathed your first breath, before one dirt clod was formed, before Adam and Eve sinned. I don't know about you, but I don't think I have enough brain power to get that one down. And I'm not supposed to. I have a finite mind. God is infinite. Infinite. Literally. 
But this is what it says here. This is what it teaches. Before the foundation of these spiritual blessings were set apart for us. Before the foundation of the world, there was an eternal counsel held between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I mean, at some point, they had to come together to plan this stuff and, and, and to discuss it and to set forth a plan for the future, right? We see an example of this, you know, maybe an eternal council happening. We see an example of this in Genesis 1.26, where the Holy Trinity discussed the creation of man. What did they say when they came together and when they were planning to make man? They said, let us make man in our image. So we see an example of a, an eternal holy council coming together to discuss creation, to discuss mankind. At that council, or another one, the Holy Trinity discussed how to save man and what each of them would do, uh, would do to achieve our salvation. Our passage illustrates this amazingly well. The Father's part in our salvation, verses 4 to 6, election and adoption. The Son's part, verses 7 to 12, redemption through His blood, forgiveness of sins, mystery of the gospel revealed, and inheritance. The Holy Spirit's part, verses 13 to 14, regeneration, illumination, and sealing us with God's covenantal promise. You see, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all have an active role in the salvation of man. In your life, they all had a part in that. And this whole little text here describes exactly what they did. God elects and adopts. The Son redeems. The Holy Spirit regenerates and illuminates and seals. It's all right there in chapter 1, verse 3 to 14. There is the ministry of the Holy Trinity. That's what they do. All the more reason to praise all three, right? This is an amazing text you're beholding and, and, and we're beholding here. It really is. This is why when I said when we first started this series that I thought that this was going to be probably the greatest, at least in my opinion, chapter of Scripture I've ever even looked at in any detail. And we just got done teaching through the book of Acts for two, over two years. And so that's a broad statement here. But this is insane. This is amazing. These Trinitarian works were planned for believers before the foundation of the world. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit worked it all out well before anything was created. Also, these Trinitarian works are what Paul identifies as our in Christ spiritual blessings that are listed in 4 to 13. So let's look at the first one. Let's begin with the first one. Are you ready? And if you haven't been taking notes, this would be a really good time to do that. Spiritual blessing number one, election, verse four. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Okay, election is seen in the phrase, he chose us. And you must understand that there are several types of election in the Bible. I'm going to cover three really quickly. There is theocratic election. These are all theological terms. So it's okay if you're like, what? Why is he talking about this? I think it's important. Theocratic election, right? Theocratic election has to do with nationhood, not salvation. Uh, we want to be thinking of Israel uh, God chose Israel to be a holy people unto himself, right? Deuteronomy 7, 6. What God did in eternity past was he elected Israel to be a nation for himself. So theocratic 
election has to do with electing a nation, electing a people, electing a group, and that's exactly what he did. But it doesn't have anything to do with salvation. There's nothing salvific about theocratic. It's just, that's my nation. That's all it is. There is also vocational election. Vocational election. Vocational election has to do with a position, task, or job, not salvation. The Lord called out the tribe of Levi to be his priests, but Levi's were not thereby guaranteed salvation. Jesus called 12 men to be apostles, but only 11 of them to salvation. Judas wasn't saved. He wasn't elect to salvation. After God saved Paul, he, and think of vocational election, he elected him. He had it predestined and set up, but he elected him right in that moment, right when he saved him and blinded him, and when his sight came, he appointed him, he elected him to be what? A special apostle to the Gentiles. So that's vocational election. It has that God has elected for you to do a particular task, for you to serve as king of Israel, for you to do this, for you to do that. There, again, as I want to stress and emphasize, there is nothing salvific about it. It has to do with a job. It has to do with a task. The other one has to do with nationhood. And then you have salvific election. Salvific election has to do with salvation, obviously. It has nothing to do with nationhood or a task, position, or a job. This is the kind of election that Paul is speaking of in verse 4. He chose us. He is talking about salvific election. From all eternity, before the foundation of the world, uh, and therefore completely apart from any merit or deserving that any person could have, God chose us. That is the definition of salvific election, according to Scripture. By God's sovereign election, same thing as salvific election, those who are saved were placed in eternal union with Christ before creation ever took place ever even happened. Now, have you heard the term soteriology? How, who's ever heard of the phrase or term soteriology? Okay, there's a few people in here that are, have heard of it. Let me tell you what it is. Soteriology is the study of salvation with a massive emphasis on the order of salvation, how God saves. And in Latin, we call that the ordo salutis. That was what the reformers called it, ordo salutis. It's the order of salvation, how God saves. And there are two primary soteriological views out there, okay? I'll refer to them as view one and view two, okay? And I'm doing this deliberately not to point out theological camps to alarm anyone or to, you know, bolster somebody's pride. View one, this is a pri these are two primaries, view one lists salvation as the gospel call, the gospel goes out, faith happens, election and predestination happens, repentance happens, regeneration happens, justification happens, perseverance, they got to keep it going, happens, and then glorification happens. That's a primary view, those eight things. But it all begins with the gospel calling. That's what initiates and starts it all. And then view two lists salvation as Election, predestination, atonement, gospel call, illumination, regeneration, conversion, that's faith and repentance, justification, sanctification, that's being made more like Christ, and then glorification, that's the ultimate way of being made like Christ. 
That's the other view. So you have one view that has this order beginning with the gospel, and then you have another order that begins with the election predestination. What has Paul told us in Ephesians 1.4? What has he said to us? What has he made very, very clear here in this simple verse? That election is the starting point. Now, which view appears so far to be more accurate? Two, right? Congratulations, you're a Calvinist. People are going, I don't want to be that. Right? I said that for many years. I'm, not, I'm kidding. You're not a Calvinist because you affirm that, because there's a whole lot of people that aren't Calvinists that affirm that. But we can see in the verse that the starting point is not the gospel being preached. The starting point is God doing something in eternity past. That's the starting point. That's the key. That's the key. Now, I'd like to submit to you that Paul put election at the head of the list here. He begins our spiritual blessings with election. Why? Because that's where it belongs. That is the starting point. That is the first blessing. And because of that blessing, all the other blessings come to us. So he begins this list of blessings with election. He did it right there. He was being strategic. Why? Because he knew the truth. You need to keep in mind that he was being guided by the Holy Spirit as he wrote this. God was therefore making it known to the Ephesians that his plan of salvation and all their spiritual blessings begin with election. That's what your Bible teaches. Notice also with me where God has elected us to be. Paul wrote what? In him. In him. Who's he speaking of? Christ. He's speaking of Christ. In eternity past, we were elected, believers were elected to be in Christ. Go back to verse 1 again, right? It says that Christians are what? Saints, faithful, and in Christ. Amazing thought here. You didn't put yourself in Christ when you believed. You were put into him long before you knew him. You just responded to him. The Holy Spirit came to you and filled you with power and illumination and you responded, taking up that place in Him that was already planned for you to be. That's the kind of infinite, amazing, insanely cool God we're dealing with here. That is incredible. He set that up for us. Oh, it's crazy. You must know, you must understand, when God saves a person, He always puts them in Christ. Now, yes, in a way, they were already destined to be in Christ, but when he saves them, it's like he seals them right then in Christ. In other words, he doesn't save them and put them in Muhammad. He doesn't save them and put them in Buddha. He doesn't save them and put them in Joseph Smith or some other false prophet or some other false religion. When a person relinquishes their will and life and fallenness and depravity to Christ, crying out to him, they become sealed in Christ, they become placed in Christ in a literal sense, although it was predestined to be. They're not going somewhere else. They don't go in, they don't get saved and like Jesus and then like other things and want to do other things and, and seek after other religion and all these things. They, they become one with Christ. They become unified with Christ in spirit they are literally placed in him so that should just put to death any notion that you know all paths lead to heaven and a little bit of jesus is okay when a person gets saved they're in christ and that's the only person they're in they're not in others they're in christ now this is a 
massive theme in Paul's writings. In each of his epistles, he mentions being in Christ. Over and over he says this. Romans 8.1, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, not those who believe in Christ, those who like Christ, those who prefer Christ, those who want to honor Christ to a degree, those who are in Christ, those whom the Father has placed in Christ. There's no condemnation for those people. 1 Corinthians 1.30, and because of him, you are in Christ. You are in Christ, Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ, speaking to Christians. Ephesians 2.10, a little later on in our amazing book, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's another mind-blowing thought right there, that you were placed in Christ, in a sense, in eternity past, and destined to walk in good works. So you're not just coming up with, you're not a robot trying to find the steps, the God-honoring righteous things that you walk in, we're planned for you to walk in. It's amazing. It's just, it's above my pay grade to really be able to get this stuff down. It's incredible. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, over and over. This is just a few examples. We are in Christ. We were planned to be put in Him. We were put in Him in a sense then, and we stepped into Him at the moment of our salvation. Earlier, we talked about where our spiritual blessings are found, right? Verse 3, they are in Christ. And in verse 4, this is great, we see that God chose to put us in the closest possible proximity to those spiritual blessings, right? In Christ, who is the source of them. So the blessings are in Christ, and yet we're in Christ. So we have automatic, immediate access. You don't have to go through something or do something to get to them. You're in Christ where they're at. How wonderful is this? This is what your Bible's teaching us right now. This is amazing, man. Don't you just want to praise? Are you going, ah, come on, man. This is the good stuff, guys. Moving forward, middle of verse 4. Before the foundation of the world, we've covered this. God set it all up for us in eternity past, right? He set this whole thing up for us. He, he constructed this plan. He put it together. And, and each member of the Holy Trinity carried out their plan and are still carrying it out because the church is still growing and people are still getting saved in these things. Let's look at the purpose for our election and salvation in the second half of verse 4, right? In eternity past, God elected us and put us in Christ so that we should be what? Holy and blameless before Him. Holy and blameless before Him. I don't know if you guys realize this or not. You you will probably when I talk about it. But did you know that holiness is requisite? It's required to see God face to face? Did you know that? Did you know that? Do you know what Hebrews 12, 14 says? This is the NLT version of it. Those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Okay, so holiness is requisite to our seeing God face to face. 
You must know our God is a holy God. He is a holy, holy, holy God, as it says in Isaiah 6. Holiness is God's most defining attribute. In fact, I think it goes beyond attribute. It is the very essence of who He is and His being. It is. His holiness literally is beyond our comprehension. We can get a grasp of it, but it really, it really transcends our finite minds just as election and some of these other things do. His holiness is staggering. I'm reminded of Isaiah when he came, basically, he didn't even see God's face in Isaiah 6, 1 through 6. He saw the train of his, of his robe and his glory, and the first thing he realized is that he's a man of unclean lips. Whoa, there's God. Look at his holiness. I'm a sinner, and so is the whole nation that I prophesy to. What will I do? It literally says he became undone, which means in Hebrew, he exploded. Not in a physical sense, but just emotionally. I'm done. I'm ruined. I'm finished. He marveled at the holiness of God. It blew his mind, and immediately he was hit with a sense of uncleanness and sin and and, and wretchedness. And the angel came and purified his tongue and prepared him for ministry. Because God is holy like this, he does not permit unholy sinners like us to enter his presence. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, is perfectly holy. From age to age, he is holy. From eternity past to his incarnation to his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension, Christ is holy. He's always been holy, never not holy. Even on the cross when people are spitting on him and beat him and he's bleeding and dying, he's holy, he's holy, he's holy. Never was there a lapse or gap in his holiness. He is the holy son of God and the second member of what? The holy trinity. Now, blameless here means without defect. It basically means perfection. Okay, holiness, set apart, blameless, perfect, without defect. Knowing our plight, knowing our situation, God chose to place us in Christ, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, so that we could be made, would be made holy and blameless, and one day be able to meet God face to face. You see, something was done for you in eternity past that became actualized in your life when you got saved, and that is that God puts you in Christ so that you would become holy, because what? Christ is perfectly holy. He puts you in Christ in eternity past. You stepped into that in this life. You became holy and blameless. Why? So that you could spend eternity with God. You don't have holiness on your own. You have to be in Christ to be holy, because only Christ is holy. This is amazing stuff. It's because you've been put in Christ that God chose to do that in eternity past. You stepped into that in this life that you have been made holy and blameless and are acceptable before God. That you can actually stand in His presence and not say, woe is me, a man of unclean lips, but say, all glory be to God. Bow your knee and worship Him for eternity. Amazing. Lastly, And this is where it gets really, really, really amazing, I think. And I think amazing, but equally challenging. Some of us could be wondering, why? Why, God? Why did you choose to save us and, you know, place us in Christ and and bless us with every spiritual blessing? Why did you predestine? Why did you elect us 
to that in eternity past. Why did you do that? Why did you pick me? I think that's a completely legitimate question. Why would he save a wretch like me? Why would he save, why would he elect worms like us? The answer is at the end of verse 4, friends, and in the next few verses as well. But he gives us just a little glimpse of it at the very end of verse 4. Look at the last two words. What does it say? In love. In love. See, when you read in love there, you think that what he's doing is he's setting up the next verse. In love, he predestined us, right? That makes more sense. Why is in love then not in verse 5? Because it is a center point. It is a center point for verse 4 and verse 5. In love he elected, in love he predestined. This is amazing. And, and of course I have to say, why did you love me in eternity past? Reflecting again upon who I am and what I'm about at times and what I do and and the sin and these things and, and this constant warfare and struggle. And I, and, and I, I don't know about you guys, but I, I, I rarely love myself. I'm usually pretty torqued at myself. Because, I, I, you know, if my lips are moving, sin is not absent. If my body's moving, sin is not absent. It's like, it's just such a wrestling match. It's such a struggle. Here's the reality of this. Here's, here's the full-fledged full blast tornado strength impact of this verse. This is it. God not only knew us in eternity past, he also loved us in eternity past. And his love for us wasn't based upon what we would or would not do after being born. Because if that was true, then grace is not grace. It's not like he looked out over the corridors of time. Keep in mind, he doesn't reside or live in time. But it's not as if he looked out and saw how we would respond to him positively or how we would love our neighbor or take care of our kids. And he said, they're pretty cool people. I think I'll love them. What he's done for us has nothing to do with who we are or what we would do right or wrong. Nothing. It wasn't based upon our good deeds or faith in Christ. It was based upon his mercy Romans chapter 9 verse 15 and will his will Ephesians 1 5 he predestined us to become sons to adoption according to the counsel of his own will it says in verse 5 he did these things because he is merciful and you think of what Paul said in in Romans 9 15 I think it's there or in Romans somewhere around there where he says that um, God said to Moses I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy it's up to God whom he pours out mercy upon and his love so it's according to his love it's according to his mercy it's according to his will that he elected us for salvation, that he placed us in Christ in eternity past, that he planned for good works, for things for us to walk in after we got saved, that we would live righteous lives for Christ. He, all of that was planned out of love and, and, and by his mercy and according to the counsel of his will. This is insane stuff, guys. None of us should pretend, as I often do, that I've got this all down. And I can now go out and just teach everyone about it and I can combat every opposing view to that. How dare I do that? I need to tread lightly here because this is mysterious. And I think it's beautiful. 
I do. I don't think it's mean. I don't think it's nasty. I don't think it's unfair. I don't think it's unfair primarily because I know human nature in myself, and I am one who does not believe that God owes anything to people. I I do believe He owes all people something, wrath. Shall we go back just a couple of days ago and look at the Supreme Court's decision? Go back to 73. Go back to the little stupid things you do in between righteousness. Why would any of us think that God owes to humanity salvation, that everyone should be saved, or that he owes us anything, that he owes us his love, that he owes us his mercy. I don't know about you, but I don't think he owes us anything. And yet, it was never about owing, it was never about merit, it was never about, look what they did, I love them now. Because that's what we do, right? I think that's one of the reasons why we have such a hard time with this because our love is so conditional down on this side of glory. We tend to love those who do good things or do things that we like. I can tell you the other day, I was not in love with five members of the Supreme Court. I love those who do the right things. And unfortunately, at times, I love those who do the wrong things because I have a sinful nature and I'm drawn to that at times. But for the most part, my love is... It's contingent upon whether they do good things or whether it satisfies my flesh. I'm so thrilled and happy and, 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 and excited to proclaim to you that God's love does not work the way ours does. It doesn't work on merit. It doesn't work on honor. It doesn't work on how well or how bad we do. It just is what it is in Him. And I have to remind myself and you that His thoughts are not our thoughts. That his mind is infinite. He's got all these things worked out somehow in his mind, and we can only grasp at these things to a degree here. In love, it's because of love. Now, as mysterious as these things may be, and challenging as they may be, as Christians, we are We're called to believe them. In fact, we're obliged to believe Scripture. Even when it doesn't, and I I wrestle with this. I wrestle with this in a lot of areas. I don't wrestle with it with election because that it's not completely solved in my mind. I'm still having a hard time understanding it all, but I don't wrestle over that particular act of God and doctrine anymore. I've come to understand it in a certain way, so I don't wrestle with that, but it's amazing. I do wrestle with a lot of other things. But I'm obliged to believe Scripture as a believer, to submit to the authority of Scripture, to submit to God's Word. Now, you just think about that for a moment. Scripture is what? It's the Word of God. And what is a believer? A child of God. What is a child of God? What is a child supposed to do to their father? What are they supposed to do? They're supposed to obey. They're supposed to believe the instruction. They're supposed to accept it. That's a simple way to look at it. He is our Father, and the Bible is His Word to us. And so our only response as His children is to, is to believe and obey, as difficult as that may be. And I think He really gets a kick out of it when we're concerned about something that's not familiar to us and we begin to study it and look at it. I think that just glorifies Him. When we say, God, I'm not sure about this. That's what I said a few years ago about this doctrine. That just don't sound right to me. That doesn't sit right. That's not what I've heard my whole faith life. 
And then I began to look at it, and I think, I think that whole process glorifies them. And I, believe it or not, I believe that whole process of you coming to that understanding on any particular doctrine is all a part of what was sealed and created for you in eternity past, that, that your knowledge of a particular doctrine and your submission to God's Word was all predestined to happen too in that order. It's not like he just snaps his finger and all of a sudden, I get it. There's a process involved here, which is amazing. So it honors him when we, I think it honors him when we question to a degree, but it honors him when we, when we say, God, I'm not sure. I think it honors him when we begin to explore and to look and to study. And it really honors him when we submit and believe and proclaim these things. Yeah, without a doubt. Now I'll close with four things that election does. Election eliminates boasting. Um, I will say this, amongst those who affirm this doctrine... Uh, it seems to create boasting. And I think that that has to do with how Scripture says that knowledge puffs up. So it's not an issue with God's Word. It's not the Bible that has the problem. It's the people that get their hands on it, like me. But election eliminates boasting. Election means that salvation is utterly of God, man. That's what it means. If salvation is utterly of God, that leaves no room for boasting, right? I can't say, well, look what I did. Why didn't they do it? They don't have it, but I do. I made this happen. I prayed this prayer. And if, if election is true, if salvation works that way, if it all begins with election, then we can't come out on the backside as recipients of this and start dancing around boasting about it. Look what I got and look what they don't have. Or look what I understand and look what they don't understand. It just destroys boasting. Ephesians 2 7, 8, and 9, right? You're saved by grace, through faith, and Christ alone, these sorts of things. Why? That no man may boast. There's no boasting in election. You can't boast. It's all God, so there's no human boasting. There shouldn't be. Number two, election gains assurance of salvation. Election gains assurance of salvation. If salvation were up to us, then it would be as unstable as we are, wouldn't it? Amen? Can I get an amen on that? If I brought myself into it, then surely logic says I can bring myself out of it, right? You know, the problem with us is that we're mutable beings, right? We change, we shift, we get blown around, we're all over the place. Uh, Vody Bauckham said, if we could lose salvation, we would. That's his theological, you know boil down of, of that. If we could lose it, you would. It's that simple. John Calvin said, if our faith were not grounded in God's eternal election, it is certain that Satan might pluck it from us every minute. Have you ever noticed how people shift back and forth between, I'm not sure if I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm not sure what's going on, I'm saved, I'm not, I'm saved. You know what one of their problems might be is that they don't believe in the doctrine of election. They don't believe that God sealed it for them, that he did it, that it's all about him. They don't believe that. They believe that they brought themselves into it. So they're weighing and measuring according to their circumstances and their situation, their lifestyle and all that. I don't really live like a believer, so therefore I can't be one. Uh, wait a minute, sir. Uh, you profess Christ, he's your Lord? Oh, absolutely. Don't you understand that that profession, that profession is a projection of election? 
that you are simply proclaiming what was set up for you in eternity past that became actualized in this life. It's done for you. Don't go back and forth anymore with, I don't know if I am or I know I am. You are. Believe it and rejoice and live for Christ. You see, election, it affirms our assurance. It, it makes it certain because it was God that did it, not us. Assurance will only come when you believe the doctrine of election. Three, election leads to holiness. As we saw in verse four, election uh, and holiness go together, right? They are inseparable. The elect person is holy and blameless. A person who says this, I am elect, so I will live how I want and sin all I like, is either not elect or is elect and don't know it yet. They haven't been regenerated. They haven't been saved. And that's another thing you need to realize, we all need to realize, that just because someone's not saved and living a sinful life and doing these things doesn't mean they're not elect. They just may not know that they're going to be saved yet. They don't know that they're going to have a moment where they encounter Christ in a way that they never have before and they give their life to him. So you shouldn't go around saying, well, look at that dumb sinner and look at that, what's he doing and what's he doing? That could be a future brother or sister. You see, election and holiness are together because God elected for us to be holy and blameless. And what he set forth and what he planned for us in eternity past is actualized in this life with the elect. John Stott said, far from encouraging sin, the doctrine of election forbids it and lays upon us instead the necessity of holiness. And last, number four, and this is the one that people contest all the time. They go after it like crazy. I used to. Election promotes evangelism. Right now, there's at least five people out here going, no, I don't. Because if you're just saved and all that, then there's no purpose to it. That's how I used to think. Some say that election makes evangelism unnecessary. If God has already elected people to salvation, then why should I evangelize? He's going to save them anyways. Now, this is a great argument, I think, against the doctrine. But it doesn't work. The fact that God elects to salvation does not eliminate the means by which he calls those elect persons to faith. The primary means he uses is the proclamation of the gospel to sinners by those who are already saved. We call that evangelism. It is true that no, and you might want to write this one down, it is true that no elect person will be lost, but it is equally true that no elect person will be saved apart from understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has elected, but people don't, the elect don't get saved apart from understanding the gospel, which means what? Evangelism is crucial. It's so necessary. All the more reason to get out there and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's how God saves. That's how he does it. That's how he actualizes his, his predestined plan in the lives of his people. That's how he does it. Disregarding election actually kills evangelism, right? If God had not elected people to salvation, then we would have no assurance that some would believe and we would give up. But knowing that God has elected some to salvation, we can go out and proclaim the gospel with all hope and, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, with an anxious spirit saying, save, 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 because I know you promised to do it. I know you elected to do it. See, election tells us that he's going to save some. That's what's so wonderful. So it motivates our evangelism. 
But see, the argument's against it. Well, if he's already going to do it, then why evangelize? Because you failed to understand the means by which he actualizes and makes believers through the gospel. There is a method to it, too. He elected, but he also elected the method. Think of it like that. He elected people unto salvation, but he also elected the method by which they would get saved. He did. He put it all together. It's all part of that salvation plan. It all goes together. And there's a zillion little components and pieces. And glory be to God, in the next few verses, we'll be able to see more of those blessings and and how those things work. I, I, I am more motivated. I'll just tell you this in personal testimony. I am more motivated today to evangelize the lost than I ever have been during my entire faith walk. And I I can tell you that I know part of that motivation comes through understanding this doctrine to a degree, because I know that God is going... I mean, just think about it. The world is crumbling and tumbling around us. It's falling apart. Pretty soon, somebody's going to be knocking on the door here saying, you need to marry gay people, and if you don't, we're going to... you're breaking the law. There's all sorts of stuff happening, right? 55 million abortions, that's unreal. Just think of all the stuff, the robberies. Do you ever read local news? There's at least two or three shootings in Modesto every day. They just found, we have a, I work at the stereo shop. Rich, you've been in there before. Some of you have been in there before. You've never come back. I get it. But, you know, we have a customer that, that has bought a lot of stuff from us, and they just found his body in a, in a garage on uh, Rumble Road. I mean, it's just amazing, the stuff. Well, it's not amazing, but it's terrible. I mean, look at what's happening around us. One would be led to think that this new ruling with the Supreme Court and all these other things that are happening are really going to hamper the gospel. They're really going to screw up the church. You know, churches are going to be closing all over the place. They're going to lose their tax exemption. All these things are going to happen. It's going to be a cataclysmic sort of, you know, perfect storm devastation on the church. And and the church is going to be like the church in Europe is today. There's still a church there, but it's really a tiny remnant. It's irrelevant there. It's kind of out. And that's where we're headed uh, as Americans. And, And there's no hope and and evangelism's pointless now do all this stuff and blah 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 blah. election god's plan is going to happen it doesn't matter what the supreme court does it doesn't matter don't you oh i I just when people text me oh man the bottom just fell out i said it just began it's going to be so glorious because guess what god has a plan and he's going to work in the midst of all of this garbage and i think this new issue is going to refine the church like ever you're going to have a whole lot of people that are in the church that call themselves Christians, and this whole gay marriage issue is going to cause a major firestorm with them, and they're going to separate from the church, and we're going to see who the true believers are and who they aren't. And so God's going to use all of this terrible stuff that we sit there and look at Facebook, and we're liking it. I love this article from Ted Cruz, and all this stuff, and we're looking at all this, and we think the bottom's falling out, and it's, the end is near, and we're toast, and it's over with, and Obama's the Antichrist, and God's election stands. You understand that? It doesn't matter. Kings have aligned themselves, and the forces of darkness have aligned themselves since the very beginning against the Lord, and who wins every time? We have a sovereign, all-powerful God. Your salvation is certain because of election, world events, and all of these things that are playing out, and Him building His church They are certain because of election. He will prevail, even though it seems dismal. He will prevail. He will prevail. Election is 
the starting point of salvation and the first in Christ spiritual blessing of Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. I really hope you've been blessed through this message, through God's Word. Lord willing, we'll continue next Sunday and look at some of the other spiritual blessings. Let's pray and thank the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for their amazing plan and work. Amen.